everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. Carson Humiston here, the founder and CEO of Angst. And today I'm excited because today we have a guest who's interviewed me a handful of times, but we're turning the tables and I'm interviewing him. So we have Jeremy Burke, who is the founder and lead writer at Cultivated, the cannabis industry's newsletter. And Jeremy Previously, I know most of our listeners know him because he was with Business Insider, covered the cannabis space extensively, had a leading newsletter, tons of great stories in in true journalism in the cannabis industry, one of the first professional journalists covering the space. So Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing good, Carson. Thanks for thanks for having me on, and it's fun to uh, you know finally answer some questions instead of ask them. So I'm excited to do this. Yeah, the last time, I think the last time we spoke was when we were closed the Series B and you had myself and Andrea Hippo from Lair Hippo come on and we did that really cool kind of like business school, how to raise yeah. pitch deck. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah, no, it was super fun. I think like we, you know, at my previous job, we did a lot of that. And I think people found it really useful to sort of figure out, you know, how to put pitches together, what investors want to see, especially in the cannabis industry where things, um, you know, as you're familiar with, work a little bit differently than, than traditional industries. Well, we're going to get into all that. I would love to back up just a little bit and learn about your background and how you ultimately went down the path of covering the cannabis industry at Business Insider. So tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. I mean, how far back do you want me to start? I can go like right back to the beginning. <laughs> see, see, like this is the thing. This is why you're such a better, <laughs> you're such a better uh, journalist and interviewer than I am. Why, why don't we start in you know, what led you to ultimately decide that you wanted to go into journalism in general and that we can move into cannabis? Yeah, for sure. So, um, so I graduated college in 2014. Um, you know, as a kid, as, as a 12 year old, like if you'd asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, I would have said I wanted to be a journalist. Um, you know, that, that, that obviously changed. I studied environmental science in college. Um, you know, I, I barely, I wrote like one or two articles for, uh, the Bowdoin Orient or student newspaper. I wasn't super involved. Um, but, you know, I, I basically graduated college, like I was a liberal arts graduate, didn't really know what I wanted to do, traveled for a bit. And then my my now fiance at the time um, was from New York, got a job in New York City. And so I said, you know, what? I've always liked writing, like if I can get a writing job, I can live in Brooklyn and, and I can try that. Um, so I landed, long story short, I landed at a very small travel publication called Atlas Obscura, um, which was then acquired by Slate. I did a short, like four month editorial fellowship there. And, you know, I kind of really hit my stride. I felt like I could do this as a job. Um, it was paying me. Um, so after that, I really wanted to get, you know, a, a full training in journalism. So I wanted to join a big publication and report on breaking news and then figure out what I was interested in from there. So from Alice Obscura, I landed at Insider, um, then Business Insider, um, way back in 2015. At the time, I was an intern on the breaking news team, which really meant covering the 2016 election. Um, so that was really a trial by fire. It was a quick education in how journalism works and how digital journalism in the 21st century works. It was also uh, not the most fun job, to say the least. I knew I didn't want to be a political reporter. Um, so at the time, I, I converted to full-time um, insider, was really sort of staffing up aggressively on the finance beat. And I wasn't really interested in finance, to say the least. Um, I just thought it would be a good learning opportunity to learn from some of these sort of smarter, stronger, more senior editors that came from, you know, illustrious publications like Reuters, Bloomberg, whatever, Wall Street Journal. 
So I joined the finance team. Um, I figured out how to read a balance sheet. I covered bank earnings. I covered, you know, venture capital and just sort of like learned how the world of business and finance works. Around 2016, and I'll sort of connect the story a little bit, but around 2016, I wrote a very one-off story about, um, it was then Harborside in Oakland had won a pretty landmark court case uh, to continue operating. And, and you know, I, I just got more feedback from that story than anything I'd written previously. And so um, at Insider, it's very metrics-based, like we're always looking at what readers like and what they click on and, and using that to guide coverage for, for better or worse, and we can get into that. Um, but, you know, at the time I was 25 or 26 and, you know, I figured like I could compete with people who are a decade older than me and much stronger than me at reporting and much better than me for scoops on like Uber and Goldman Sachs, or I could, you know, zig where others are zagging and start writing about cannabis. So, um, you know, I started writing a few more than one-off articles, became 30% of my time and 40% of my time to the point where in 2017, and this was still kind of early days in the East Coast, especially um, I pitched it as a new vertical to our higher ups. And basically, you know, to their credit, they're willing to try it. It's a little bit out of left field. They're like, we didn't think we'd have a cannabis vertical or a cannabis reporter, especially from a business and finance perspective. So basically, they gave me a quarter to prove out the model, to figure out um, if there's readership for it and uh, if the beat would work. And it did. And basically, the rest is history. So in those early days when you were went to Business Insider and you pitched them on, we're going to do this cannabis leg. And then they said, okay, you have one quarter. Like, how did you even figure out where to start or what readers would want to read? I mean, this is a really cool story because it's, I've heard this term thrown around like intrapreneur, where you basically start a business within a business, which it sounds exactly like you had the founder experience of starting this. So I'd love, I'm sure people would love to hear like, where, how'd you start? Where'd you go? Yeah, exactly. So, and just to caveat that, like it definitely was intrapreneurial at the same time, you know, I was an editorial and, um, you know, big publications do keep like a pretty strong firewall between the business side and editorial side. So, you know, I was responsible for making it work, but I didn't necessarily have like, you know, budgetary constraints, like all that went above my head. But to sort of answer your question specifically, you know, I got some numbers um, of, uh, they wanted to, I guess, sort of to back up at the time, Insider was really leaning into the subscription business model to get people to subscribe rather than um, sell ads against clicks, um, which is sort of like two different digital media business models. Um, and so you got, you definitely got me to, sub- you definitely got me to subscribe. Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically like, like long story short is I, I thought, you know, and I did sort of like a very sort of anecdotal cursory analysis of the coverage that was out there. And often, you know, you had like, if the Wall Street Journal wrote an article um, at the time, it was someone who didn't really know about the industry, they didn't really have specific subject matter expertise. So it was sort of superficial, right? Not to say the reporter was bad, but it was like one of a million things they were doing that week. Um, And then the other side, you had, you know, high times and, and, and publications that really sort of covered the lifestyle, um, you know, product reviews, stuff like that. And so where I saw a huge opportunity was like right in the middle. This is for people like yourself who might work in the industry or it's people who are interested in what the industry is doing. Um, it's policymakers who want to see what's going on. So it's sort of like not necessarily like a trade publication, like not quite like what Marijuana Business Daily does, but like right in the middle, like interesting for someone who doesn't know anything about cannabis, but very useful for someone who's in the industry. And so I thought swimming right in that middle lane was a huge opportunity, um, especially a huge opportunity to convert people who had a little bit of disposable income who would pay for a subscription, right? Like these are people who 
are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, work at startups, work at law firms, work at cannabis companies, um, and really writing for them and sort of figuring out what the audience would want and what the audience would be. You know, at the same time, it is an experiment, right? Like we try a lot of stuff, um, things would work for a period of time, and then they wouldn't. So we'd figure out like, okay, what do we need to do? Like, how do we serve the audience? But at the end of the day, like, there really was, I think, a thirst for, you know, sober, responsible, skeptical, mature, whatever word you want to ascribe to it, coverage of the industry, right? And not necessarily to be a cheerleader, not necessarily to be a cynic, but to just report on the truth, you know, as we can do to the best of our ability. Yeah. So, so obviously the first quarter, we, we know how the story ends. So the first quarter was successful. And then they give you the green light to just say, okay, you've, we've, you've done this for one quarter now go crazy. What happened after the first quarter and how did it grow from there? Yeah, exactly. So specifically they gave me, um, they gave me metrics to hit. So they said like, I forget what the actual number is, but they're like, if you can average X amount of subscribers month over month for a whole quarter, like then that's, that's proof. So, um, we knocked out of the park. Like I think right away we blew it out of the water. Um, and then it was basically the green light. Like I, you know, <laughs> I changed my title the senior cannabis industry reporter, which is like pretty cool to have on LinkedIn. Um, and, and yeah, so then it just went from there. Um, and they, sort of ramped it up. Like after they saw the first growth of that quarter, they were like, okay, we can do a little bit more here. Um, and then, you know, a couple months later, uh, they we started the newsletter, Insider Cannabis, um, you know, now rest in peace. Um, but, uh, you know, and then we also hired a junior reporter to work with me, Yeji, who um, is still at Insider as well. And so um, they really saw a need to dedicate resources to it, to their credit. Uh, but I think, you know, part of that was, you know, just the quality of stories we were writing and what we were working on. Um, the two went really hand in hand. And, you know, the more kind of scoops I got, the more sort of insight and inside information that I could deliver to people. Uh, I think that was what really made it a good value proposition to subscribe. How big of a role do PR firms play? Like, are PR firms constantly pitching you? And how do you find the scoops? Yeah. So I want to choose my words carefully here. I have a lot of friends in, in, in the PR world and, and a lot of them do very good jobs. Um, however, as reporters, we are outnumbered by a very large amount by PR firms. Right. And so, um, you know, not necessarily in my new job because, you know, I have a much smaller audience and I'm building up right now. And so, you know, I need to be sort of humble about that and um, you know, make sure that I'm still getting pitched. So I want to make that clear. But at the same time, you know, every cannabis company, large or small, wants to be in Business Insider. That's, that's where the audience is. So, you know, by a year into it, I was probably getting, you know, four, 400, three, 400 emails a day. Um, I would say a day. Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, 80% of them were, were PR pitches. And it's like, you know, one human cannot possibly uh, you know, read all that or, or respond to all that or even offer any sort of insightful feedback on that. Um, so, so that's hard. And, and frankly, it's, uh, you know, makes your job pretty stressful because there's constantly something else you can do. And, you know, as I'm sure many listeners are familiar with, like writing is hard, you know, you have to focus and to, to write with clarity and purpose, you need sort of to shut things off. And it's pretty impossible to do that. Um, just based on the rapidity of the news flow and cannabis and sort of all the PR firms who are kind of clamoring for your attention. Um, so yeah, so basically to answer your question, long story short, I was pitched a lot. I was pitched, frankly, too much. Um, and what, you know, what, what I tried to convey and, and what the remit is, especially if you're writing for a subscription vertical, is that 
the information that you want people to pay for has to be new, right? It can't be in a press release. Like people aren't going to pay for something that they're going to see on PR Newswire that's going to get aggregated elsewhere. And so um, I think there was a major disconnect between what I was trying to do and what PR firms wanted me to do for them. Because if something was press released, it wasn't a story by its very nature. So, you know, less than 1% of the things that I got pitched, I couldn't necessarily write about. All that being said, you know, all the best sources I found in the cannabis industry, uh, you know, many people who have become like actual personal friends over time, like by and large, those were introduced to me through PR firms, right? The sources that I met, like people that have continued to deliver stories, like generally speaking, you know, the first introduction is a PR firm. So you have to have a really, really good one to cut through all that noise and to make that personal connection with reporters. You know, another piece I'll just add to that is that um, resource wise, you know, especially in the cannabis industry, when you, you know, and I wrote, wrote about this in my last newsletter a little bit, just because, you know, I can now and I, I'm, I'm not sort of beholden to a mainstream publication that it, it it's hard and it's it's challenging to go toe to toe with a company when you have, you know, a negative, not, not even negative, just a story that they don't want written, right? Like that, that doesn't paint them in the most flattering light, which is what every company wants written about them. You're going toe to toe with possibly like, you know, an account executive, whoever that person's superior is at the PR firm, plus internal communications, you know, plus maybe a lawyer if, it, if it's escalating to that level. And you're sort of just sitting here on an island um, trying to be fair, um, but also push for the truth and, and also, you know, maintain relationships in a very closely knit industry. So that that is a hard situation to deal with. Um, the last piece of that, which, you know, this is, again, this is my theory. I don't have sort of a lot of studies or evidence to back this up, but, um, you know, cannabis companies like aren't allowed to advertise in the same way companies and every other industry are right. Twitter just started to allow to advertise Google and Facebook barely do or don't at all. Um, you know, and it's hard to run an ad in the New York times, let's say. And so the way cannabis companies get the word out about what they're doing, cool products they're releasing is earned media, which means, you know, getting written about in an article. And so that I think has allowed cannabis companies to have larger budgets for PR than, than other industries do because there's barely any advertising spend. And so um, when you have that sort of combination where there's so few reporters and so many cannabis companies are hiring PR firms, it becomes just a little bit of chaos um, and a little bit of a mess. And, uh, it becomes sort of difficult to pick and choose your spots to write stories. I completely agree with the, particularly the last point around the cannabis companies and the limited advertising opportunities. Like I, I even think about Vangst in 2017, we hired our first PR firm and that really put us on the map because right. it, it was really hard for us to get the word out. I mean, there was so many people that didn't even know that jobs in cannabis existed. But again, it's like a timing thing. Like in 2017, it was a really cool story to write about just straight up jobs in cannabis. Fast forward to 2023, and obviously we have to take different angles to keep coming up and staying relevant. I would be curious from your perspective. I mean, I, I'll, you know, I'll share one thing that's worked well for us, but I'd like to hear from you. I think one thing that's worked well for us that you've written about and you've encouraged us to continue doing is like giving you data and giving you reports and coming up with yeah. right the salary guide that we do where we show how are salaries changing, how are benefits changing, how are how is equity across companies changing? Like 
I feel like stories from 2017, the story in 2017 was there's jobs in cannabis. The story in 2023 is not there's jobs in cannabis, no shit, there's jobs in cannabis. The story in 2023 is how is comp changed? How are employees being compensated uh, across different roles? What are the benefits like, et cetera? So like, that's a tip that you gave me that's worked really well for us, but how can all these cannabis companies you know, desperate for media attention, attract someone like you to write a story? And what kind of ad- advice could you give to the audience similar to the advice that you've given to me, which has worked really well, mind you? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. No, I think, I mean, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like one, one thing that, that we've done really well and all the stories I've written about you and Banks, it's like, know that reporters have to play the game, right? Like we have to offer exclusive information and, you know, my, my reputation, my byline is dependent on delivering that consistently. So one way to do that is like, you know, with data, it's like, if you can offer me an early look at what you're doing, you have this super interesting repository of compensation data. You know, our readers really want to know that. Like these are people who want to work in the industry or who just want to see how much people, or excuse me, how much money other people in the industry are making. Um, that is super useful. It's like offer that exclusivity. Um, you know, you have to be careful with what reporter you offer it to because you have to ensure that the reporter has the ability to sort of at least, you know, I'm not a math person, but at least have some faculty with data to sort of understand like what the trends are showing and, and to pre- present it in a useful way. Um, but I would say like, it, it's as simple as that. Like if I could distill one point, it's like offer exclusivity. Like no one really wants to cover a press release if, unless it's specifically in their job title to cover corporate news for, you know, multi-state operators or something. And that's very, very few people. And, and, and I'd imagine that those people aren't very, aren't read very much. Um, so I would say just like, think like a reporter, like every reporter wants to write something that other reporters are not writing. If you can offer that, you have a much better chance at landing a story. If something is a press release, it's, it's going to be hard to, to, to get that written, right? right? It has to be super interesting. Like it's one thing, you know, if a company raises a billion dollars from, you know, <laughs> Tiger Global or something like that. Like, obviously, that's going to get written about. It's huge news. But it's another thing if you, you know, you're a small seed startup and you you want press, um, how are you going to make that story interesting enough that a reporter is going to drop everything else to write it? Um, they're not going to do it if they think that four other publications have it. Straight up. And also, even on the capital side, like, again, going back to the point of, like, how stories have changed from 2017 to 2023, like, yeah. in 2017, it was straight up impressive if a tech company in cannabis raised a million bucks. Like, I remember right. seeing people, like, this is before we raised our seed round and being like, oh, my God, they raised a million dollars. What are they possibly going to do with a million dollars? Now it's like people, actually, maybe not in 2023, but in in, in uh, 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022, so there were so many companies raising money that I feel like the funding story got old. So to your point, like you need an angle that's different than just we raised this money. So um, yeah. the, the, the data is like, I think that's a great, like the exclusivity and the data. Like I, I even think about, like I remember when you reached out to me about the Series B deck and I was like a little nervous because I was kind of thinking like, should we really be publishing our Series B deck? But then it ended up, I, I mean, I remember you told me it ended up being one of the most well received you have to give something to get something so that's what I've learned in this in my journey in PR like it's not just you can't just like get all the rewards you have to give something like we had to give some personal information about our company to you exactly like like two two things I'll add to that is one is like you know details you can offer like for sure as a founder I can totally understand how that would make you uncomfortable and like you you know I can't tell you how many conversations or I'm like listen like 
you know, we've done this before and, you know, we can work with you to strike stuff that's going to make things uncomfortable or make your investors uncomfortable and things like that. Um, but you really have to do like if you want press and you want good press, you want to work with good reporters other than just sort of an extension of PR, which which isn't really getting read. You do have to give up something. You said exactly that. You like you have to reveal numbers that like a smart reporter would find interesting. Um, you know, another another thing I'll add to that is that, you know, and this is sort of a plea for people to leak stuff to me is that like strategic leaking can be useful for both parties. Right. Like it, it's one thing to, you know, raise a bunch of money and have a PR firm go out and say this deal is done. Um, you know, would, would you want to write about it? Oh, by the way, we've also pitched Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal and New York Times and all these other companies. It's another thing to say, hey, Jeremy, like this company I work with is about to close, right? Um, you know, do you want to write about them? Like here, here's, you know, here's three days notice. Um, and, and that to me, like that's a more interesting story already. And there's ways you can get around the sourcing that sort of keeps every party comfortable. Obviously, you know, everyone has to have knowledge of the situation and there's negotiation that has to be done to make sure source and reporter are on the same page about how they're going to be, you know, sourced and, and notified about the story. Um, but strategic leaks are a really good way to actually get pretty positive press coverage um, in a lot of ways. And I think that, you know, I do work with some PRs who are super smart about that. Um, and I work with some others who don't really understand the game as well as they need to, to, to get those placements. So I could, we could go, if we have time, I want to circle back because I do think people just love the tactical advice. Like that's a great piece of tactical, tactical advice. Tee Jeremy up with a strategic leak before it actually goes live. That, that's a great piece of tactical advice. Provide data and insights that no one else has. Provide exclusivity. These are all things that companies can be focusing on to get their name in the media. Uh, so maybe we'll have time to go back to that. But I wanted to switch gears a little bit to things are humming along at Business Insider. You've got a very solid audience of readers that rely on you. How did you decide to leave Business Insider to start your own company? So I, I had always, not always, I, I, had, I had a long time in my mind to do something entrepreneurial within journalism. Um, I love being a reporter. I love writing. I think, you know, <laughs> frankly, writing is like practically my only marketable skill at, at age 30. So, you know, I do want to lean into that. But at the same time, you know, like joking aside, I, I really wanted to be in this not to be a reporter for the rest of my career, but to do something in media that was interesting. And I think that one of the things I saw with a lot of media startups was that, you know, people kind of came from the business side and didn't really understand what writers want, what writers need. And, and not only that, the incentive structure under which writers can produce really crucial and important work. Um, so, you know, I, I probably delayed leaving Business Insider for longer than I should have, just purely based on the pandemic and, you know, like uh, just like general uncertainty in the economy where, you know, I was like, I have a great full time job. I love writing about this. You know, I was working remotely, like things were very good, you know, and so I didn't want to sort of like disrupt that. Skiing midday. Sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like let's, yeah, let's be real. It was, it was a very, it was a very good position. To be let's in. be real. It was yeah. a great job. I, I'm reading this book about entrepreneur, like about entrepreneurs and I'll send it to you. And it said like a steady paycheck and, um, cocaine have the same level of addictiveness. <laughs> right. I, and, I, I, and that's yeah. what, I mean, it's true. I actually think like a lot of people don't actually go and start their own business because they're so addicted to that consistent paycheck. So I really applaud you for doing it. I know you haven't even finished the story, so I'll, I'll let you keep going. Hence why I'm a bad journalist, but keep keep going. 
<laughs> totally. No, no, that's cool. Like, so at the end of the day, you know, this was, this is something that was on my mind for a while. Um, and, you know, like I, I, I sort of pulled back and, and, you know, just kind of thinking through like media is a tough industry. Right. But I do think just based on a little bit of research I've been doing, I've had a sort of a lot of time to sit and think since I've left my full-time job that, you know, there, there are sort of higher margin businesses that people create in media within very specific niches. Right. Um, now, you know, do I think that this is going to make me the next Mark Zuckerberg? Absolutely not. But that's not the goal, right? Like, if I can build a company that's doing really important work, that's not only paying my own salary, but maybe offers the opportunity for an exit down the line, that's more money than I would make just straight up as a reporter for the next decade or so. Like, that is success to me. And at the same time, like, I just, not to sort of... um you know, not to sort of like denigrate any of uh, the other, you know, media startups in in the cannabis world. I, I just thought that there was room to speak to an audience that wasn't being spoken to. You know, on the one side, you have publications that are basically for straight up for investors, right? Like they're, they're talking about a lot of sell-side research. Um, you know, they're sort of writing about press releases. Like that's important and that's useful if you're an investor, um, specifically an investor in cannabis. And then again, on the other side, like I was talking about BI, like there's this sort of lifestyle publications. Um, what I want to be and what I want to do is right in the middle of that. I think the Venn diagram, when you sort of look at that audience, has a really big middle that that isn't necessarily being served by the trade publication model, right? Like, you know, I, I've sort of built my reputation. I, I like to think I have a bit of an interesting insight and, you know, going independent and creating your own rules means I'm free to talk about my insight. But I also have a track record of like delivering information that people, you know, the idea, the hope is that people will pay for the information I'm delivering down the line. Now I have to build a lot of infrastructure around that, right? Like right now it's just me doing this. So I'm not necessarily going to take on a big multi-piece investigation because I just don't have, you know, the muscle to do that yet. But the hope is that I will. And, and yeah, exactly. The hope is that I will. And um, I'm building slowly to get there. Um, and so you know, the idea is just to serve this audience that is like smart people who are in the cannabis industry um, or who might be interested in the cannabis industry about what they need to know, um, whether that's what's going on in the markets, whether that's what's going on in Capitol Hill. Um, there's just so many pieces to this puzzle that are so interesting that, you know, my sort of take is they demand, you know, a full time expert focus um, and then kind of figure out the pieces of the business model later. Like I'm, you know, thinking through a lot of different revenue strategy pieces. But right now, um, and which is why I go on this podcast is great for me, is like right now my goal is just to work for free and to build the list as much as possible. Because, you know, the idea is that having an audience, you can kind of tack on revenue as it, as needed and as it comes. Um, at least, yeah. <laughs> and I also think a great thing is that you, you uh, for people that have not subscribed yet, we'll, we'll, by the way, let's actually... In case anyone drops off, how do people subscribe right now if they want to do it at this moment? Just enter cultivated.news into your browser and enter your email. It's totally free. Um, You'll get it twice a week. And you can also find it on Twitter and LinkedIn. But it's very easy. Literally just on Substack, enter your email. So anyway, when you do that, you'll see, you know, in the letter that went out this week, one one of the parts of it that I really liked was Jeremy writes, to lay it all out, I don't have an agenda. I'm okay with saying that cannabis legalization would serve the greater good on multiple fronts, though it isn't harmless. But I could care less if company A wins over company B. I don't have a financial stake in any cannabis companies, nor do I trade stocks. And you kind of go out to really, really kind of uh, 
neatly write out what you just said. And I think it's good when you start a business to kind of lay it all out there. Like, this is what I'm doing here and, and, and kind of state your purpose, which I think you did a really nice job of in that first letter. And I was wondering if you could touch a little bit more uh, just about what you wrote about how like, you're going to piss some people off basically is what I took away from that. And that's what you feel good journalism requires because not every company is rainbows and sunshine and you need to give a fair view on all companies. So can you just elaborate on that and why you felt it was necessary to kind of come out of the gate with that? Totally. Um, and and I'm, I'm glad that resonated with you because it's sort of scary putting that stuff out in the world. Um, I loved it. I mean, like, yeah. it's the truth. Some people, like, look, you're an entrepreneur. You chose to do this and this you're doing it the way that you want to do it. Yeah, look. All the more power to you. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's like, I, I, in my personal life, I'm, I'm such a non-confrontational person. Like I'm, you know, I'm very happy. I'm very peaceful. Like I really like to like bring groups together and keep the peace in my professional life. Um, the demands of my job demand that I engage in conflict every single day. Um, that's just part of reporting. And that's part of, you know, what I touched on earlier, valuable reporting is bringing insights that people might not necessarily want written sometimes, right? And that doesn't mean that I'm attacking you. It doesn't mean that what I'm writing is going to be unfair. Like I, you know, I have, I'm a professional reporter. I have a lot of experience doing this. I can ensure that what I'm saying is true, right? So that that's number one. And number two is that it, it is a small industry. And I do, I, what, what, what I'm trying to be very careful of is maintaining access and maintaining connections that I've built and, and worked really hard to cultivate, you know, <laughs> pun aside over time um but still delivering readers what they want to read and sometimes you just have to kind of clear your throat and say this look like not all my coverage is going to make you happy right um but like think deeply about yourself like what do you want to read right do you want to read like oh my competitor is doing so good and look at all these programs they're doing or do you want to read like what is going on at this company right if you are the ceo of a company right like you know right now on the MSO side, like the labor story is huge because these companies are getting so big and oftentimes like workers aren't treated that well. Um, I would love to say that workers are all treated well, but like the amount of people reaching out to me to tell me these are important stories to tell, like means I feel responsible to tell them. Um, you know, CEOs of these companies, like they've all worked with me and been nice to me, but if I was running this company, I'd want to know what my workers were thinking, right? Like maybe there is an information gap and maybe this is useful. It's not attacking you. I'm not trying to make your stock go down. I'm not trying to say you should be fired. I'm just trying to say, like, here's what's going on. Like, you can fix this or, like, you should know about it at least. And also you're not attacking people personally. You're not, like, look, every business has challenges. And I I've never read an article from you where you were, like, this person sucks, no, right? Like, no. it's not like you're attacking people no. personally out here. No, and, and again, that's, like, what, what, I, what I try and show is that, like, you know, I, I don't, I mean, look, I, I have an agenda insofar as like, I want my newsletter to be successful. Like that is my agenda, right? And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Just like every other entrepreneur and business owner in this world right. has an agenda. And at the end of the day, you're in the business of getting people to read your stories. So I, I think that's a very reasonable. And like I said, I, I really liked the, I really liked your the one that came out earlier this week, what do daylight savings and cannabis have in common? And yeah. <laughs> I'm a really happy subscriber and I would encourage everybody listening to this podcast to subscribe. I mean, I, I think, I think there's a lot going to be a lot of really great stories. And I mean, I can speak on behalf of Vangst. I mean, we were, we really liked all the coverage at business insider and for us, it was really useful in, in learning, Hey, who are the best companies? Who's hiring? Who should we be looking for? 
if there's companies with turnover, can can we step in to help them? Right. So I do think like the information services businesses in a huge way. Yeah, and, and yeah, exactly right. Like that, like the idea, like this, this should at the end of the day, it's like I, you know, I'm just there's a lot of reporters who just take a very cynical view on the world and the people they cover. Um, you know, there's there's frankly a lot of reporters who are just you know anti-capitalism and they 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 don't not necessarily don't want to see people be successful, but they 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 do as much as they say their objective. Like there is an agenda there. Right. For me, I can confidently say, like, look, like this is like I said in my newsletter, like this is going to be a money making endeavor. I'm not anti-capitalism. Like if more people are succeeding, that's great. At the same time, the media has an important role in making capitalism fair. Right. Like these companies need scrutiny. You should want scrutiny. Scrutiny is good for the ecosystem as a whole. um, And I want to kind of provide that scrutiny. Right. Um, Sometimes that scrutiny means I'll write a positive story. Sometimes it means I'll write a negative story. It's not personal. Like. You know, if you're if you're mad at what I write, and people have short term memory, so uh, they, they 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 they'll read a new, new, uh, they'll, they'll they'll forget about it in a couple in a couple months. Right, like 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 I, I've had I've had situations, especially in my old job, where people have called me and screamed at me for a story, and then six months later they're like, "Oh, how you doing? I'm in town. Do you want to get a coffee?" Like you know, so it's like yes, like you you just have to deal with this. Um, and and for me personally, it's like I just try and have the emotional maturity to like not take it personally when someone's screaming at you for something you wrote but it is hard to do that sometimes like frankly like sometimes like oh like what did i you know not to use bad language but it's like what did i fuck up this time i'm like wait i didn't fuck anything up they're just mad okay like let them simmer and you know we'll we'll, we'll make the connection back in a couple months well as you as you be as you as you move through your entrepreneurial journey, especially if you start uh, having your own employees, uh, I'm sure you will get a taste that uh, right. it's, it's very hard to do everything right all the time. I guess we only have we only have five minutes left here. What, what are you most excited about as being an entrepreneur, and what are you most nervous about? Yeah, that is a really good question. I, I would say the most exciting thing is like I can determine my own future, right? Um, when you are a salaried employee at a big company, it's like, you know, no matter how hard you work, it's like the maximum you'll get is like a six or 8% raise that year. Right. Um, and so it's like the, the, from a purely financial perspective, like my top end earnings are much higher. And not only that, I, I just feel like I've been on a theoretical or intellectual level, you know, I've been steeped in digital media for so long. There's so much change going on in media Likewise, with the industry I cover, there's so much change going on in cannabis, and I've been steeped in it for a long time. I have a ton of ideas about both industries and about how both things should work, and and what this newsletter slash you know media company I'm trying to build hopefully will do is sort of bring all my ideas together, right? Like I have a lot of ideas about how writers should work, the incentives they should work under, what produces good quality journalism that people want to read. And I have a lot of ideas about the cannabis industry and what needs to be called out, what needs to be fixed, what needs to be changed. And so it's sort of hopefully the fulfillment of all these different pieces of my life um, put into this one company. And um, so that that part is really exciting. The financial side and the intellectual side, the scary side is like, you know, I have no idea how to run a business, right? Like I'm going to business school. I'm starting in May for that specific reason. Like I just have no idea. I'm really bad at math. I don't know how to do accounting. And so, like, there's all these kind of pieces that I'm trying to figure out. Like, the other day... Don't worry. Was, that's the easy part. That's the easy part. I, I, well, yeah. I, I, was, I was, like, dealing with setting up my domain, right, on Google. And that took me, like, half a day. And I was like, you know, 
Like there's a lot of probably 14 year olds who could have done this in 30 minutes. And I'm sitting here as a 30 year old man, like, you know, trying to figure this out. And so like, there's, there's things like that, like the micro decisions you have to make, the things you have to learn that aren't necessarily just about the writing. That piece is scary. And that piece is really hard. Um, and to sort of put off having income um, for future earning potential is a little bit scary as well. I'm fine. Like I'm going to be okay. I'm going to eat and all that kind of stuff. But um it, it, it's scary. It, it's scary and it, it's hard to do. And it's really hard to take that first leap. Well, I'm going to send you the copy of the book that actually Ryan Smith from LeafLink and I are reading together. And it talks about a lot of the things, but the, the, only the people that actually end up being super successful and super happy, I think actually take the risk and follow their dreams. So I'm super happy for you that you're taking the risk. Yeah. You're going to figure out the domain and accounting BS. There's thousands of people out there <laughs> that can do, can do that. There's not thousands of people that can muster up the courage to leave a steady job and go for something. So as a, you know, one entrepreneur to the other, I'm super excited to see how the journey unfolds. If, if people want to find you, they can follow you on Twitter. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. Can you share with us if people want to find you, how they can get in touch yeah, with you? Yeah, sure. So uh, follow me on Twitter. It's just at JF Burke, LinkedIn, Jeremy Burke. It's B-E-R-K-E, not B-U-R-K-E. I got to make that clear. Um, and if you want to email me, it's just Jeremy at cultivated.news. And another plug, please subscribe to my newsletter. It helps me make <laughs> my dreams come true the more subscribers I have. So um, I'd love for you all to subscribe and to give me feedback. Tell me what you like and tell me what you don't like um, because, you know, I want this to be your newsletter as much as it's mine. And send send Jeremy tips. I mean, people that are listening to this yeah, podcast. Leak stuff. Or, this is called the <laughs> right. Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. If you're proud to work in cannabis and you hear about something great happening in the industry, you hear about something not so great, Jeremy is, is the person to talk to. So this is your newsletter. Please subscribe. Jeremy, thanks so much for being here. Let's, let's have another... Um, Let's chat in a year, and I can't wait to hear about the first year as an entrepreneur. Yeah, would love to do it, Carson. Thanks so much for having me, and would love to do it again. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host, Corey Yelland, is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.